Hey, faithful podcast listeners, this is Andy, and uh, we don't have commercials on this podcast, but this is the closest thing we have to it, but it's not really a commercial. I'm trying to sell you something, because that would be a, um, a contradiction of what this podcast is all about, but there's an opportunity here. Uh, now that the three volumes are out of the Ministry in a Secular Age series, and uh, as we've continued to talk about some of those issues in the podcast, a lot of you particularly those of you who are um, leading congregations, have emailed me and often ask, hey, what does this really look like? And my response to you always is, I don't know, you tell me. Well, now there's an opportunity to kind of uh, lean into that and uh, learn together on what that might be. So um, by the great generosity of the uh, Eli Lilly Endowment, um, my friend David Wood and I have received a, uh, a very, fairly substantial grant to explore some of this. And the grant is actually called From Relevance to Resonance, which connects with Volume 3 of the book. And uh, we're going to have inside that grant, we're going to do a bunch of things. But one of the things we're going to do that I want to invite you into is we're going to have um, two groups of 12 that will journey together for, for three years um, with a little bit of stipend for you and some money to try some experiments in your congregation that moves from relevance to resonance or tries to address the the secular age that Taylor describes and tries to get at some of the more productive elements of resonance that uh, that Rosa looks at so and you know um, looks at that kind of theologically so it'll be a couple of years of, of studying together and then you experimenting and uh, um, yeah, us learning from that uh, all together so I hope you'll check it out right now uh, there's not much other to rep- uh, much to report other than to go to the website relevance to resonance Com, which will immediately take you inside a Luther website, but you will be able to. Uh, we'll just just know that that site's there and and check back. But applications to be part of this um, will be coming out. I don't know, probably by the summertime, and we'll hopefully have a little link that you can um, drop your email in there so you can get an email when the application goes live to be part of this group. So, uh, yeah, hope to see you in those groups. Hopefully that you're interested in it. And I think we had a lot to learn that we learn from each other as we uh, move forward. So we have a listener question from Zoe, who is a youth worker in London, the church of England. Hi Zoe. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for the question. Hey Zoe. I hope you're doing well. So Zoe, one of us should read Zoe's in a British accent. No, I, I think that'd be that would that would uh, not be good. That would be very offensive because I think neither of us could. I don't know. Maybe you could pull it. Off. I can't. I, I, I can't pull. I can't pull. I've it been off. in England once. I think you've been there more than I have. But um, so in her email, uh, Zoe has this great question that I thought maybe you could shed some light on, Andy. Um, she asks: In a secular age, how is sin understood? The age of authenticity hates labels, and this feels like the biggest one. Sin being the biggest label. How do Christians talk about sin? Should we? Why? Yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if people on this podcast are just getting sick of like references to Charles Taylor or whatever. But um, well, if you are, you're listening to the wrong podcast because it's literally <laughs> in the title, you know. So it is. Sorry, guys. Sorry, not some, sorry. At some point, we may pivot in some ways. But, I mean, I do think this is true. I mean, obviously, the question asked about the age of authenticity, so we have to give copyright credit to, to Taylor on that. But the, the two things he says are, well, kind of around the conversations of uh, the age of authenticity, but for sure connected to it, is he talks about these things that have been eclipsed. And he, he talks about the eclipse both both of sin, that sin has been eclipsed, 
um, and that it's it's turned. I mean, it's a deeper argument that probably that I can manifest in my memory right now. But I mean, there is this kind of movement of of him talking about this kind of transition from thinking of sin as like this this spiritual reality or even this force that's out in the world um, that's kind of corrupting or imposing the good, and instead to think of uh, kind of sin gets eclipsed particularly by kind of views of of sickness. Um, which is kind of where we go with everything. And you can see how this is in some ways. Remember with Taylor, there's, these are, there's always an ironic disposition. So there's always like, this is good, this is bad. But I mean, part of the point of this movement of thinking of sin not as like this demonic force outside or even this reality that's kind of outside or threatens that can get in us or is just outside and, 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 and has an effect on us in the world and turning that all into to sickness or illness is it does seem to potentially, I mean, let's, let's kind of bracket this. It does seem to kind of free us from beating up on the agent. You know, like we, we kind of, we feel this way in a broad way culturally where we want to like say like, well, um, alcoholism or depression, these are illnesses. So therefore the agent who has them you cannot look at them as a moral failure, just like you, just because you can't look at like someone who gets the flu or gets a cold as having a moral failure. Or do you know who the uh, comic Mitch Hedberg is? He was actually from our yeah. neck of the woods. He has this joke where he goes, "Alcoholism is the only disease where someone gets mad at you for it." So he has this joke, and I'm going to butcher it because I'm not Mitch Hedberg. But basically, he'll say like, "People will say, damn it, Mitch, you're an alcoholic.'" But nobody will ever say, damn it, Mitch, you have lupus, you know, but yet our society calls alcoholism a disease. Is that kind of the same yeah, gist I mean, of what you're getting at that's here? That's what, yeah. he, that, what he's getting at. And I, and I think in a real way, like, especially as we think of kind of mental illness stuff and things like that, like, it's really good to, to have that. Now, in a, like, very direct ministerial kind of way of thinking that we can also overuse diagnoses, you know what I mean? Like even in, even in uh, kind of illness-based realities, all of a sudden you have, you know, pastors diagnosing mental illnesses or whatever, or, you know, have a bad meeting at church and like, oh my gosh, the, the, just the transference and all the, you know, the crazy disassociative behavior that was going on here. Like we can overuse that too, and it can be dehumanizing and we have to be careful of that. But there is something good that when we say, even for an alcoholic, um, even with your joke, Derek, that there is something good to say Like this is, there are uncontrollable things and people shouldn't necessarily be shamed for that. But that is a pretty deep kind of transition too. And I think Taylor wonders, okay, does turning everything into an illness, um, does that really answer the depth of the human condition. And so even if we're going to hold on to sin, to think of sin as like a sickness um, or to say like, listen, you can't shame people for bad behavior because people make bad behavior when they're sick and that's a bad thing to do. Then we shouldn't just, we should just never talk about sin because it, it's fundamentally shaming. Does, does that do the trick? Well, it surely releases us from a lot of really bad things, and it releases us from a lot of shaming things and um, a lot of scapegoating um, kind of stuff. That that's good, but does it? But does it kind of push far enough? And this is where his articulation of the eclipse of grace functions too, which takes us into the age of authenticity. So, one of the reasons we don't want to talk about about sin, though inside an age of authenticity, we're really quite happy to talk about sickness. Um, you know, like 
gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hope this isn't offensive, but you just spend a lot of time with a bunch of like middle school and high school kids. And there's a lot like kids are kids claim their sickness in their their diagnosis. Like when I was going to school, um, you know, I want, I want to say like in 2005, which is completely untrue. I was going to high school in the early 90s. But like, no, if you had a diagnosis, if you had like an IEP, like, um, you know, like you were diagnosed with some learning disabilities or whatever like you wouldn't tell anyone and that's that's shifted in a really good way where people can be kind of more upfront about their diagnoses or about the medications they're on and a lot of a lot of kids even my own are like on medications for depression and things like that and so um yeah that isn't to, sh- to shame anyone but it does kind of then pr- have this interesting kind of dynamic in the age of authenticity where having a kind of sickness could actually be a way of expressing your truest self, maybe, maybe not, but it, it is, it's allowed. But having to confront sin or even confess sin, maybe even, could be a problem. Um, and one of the reasons I think that happens is because of the second eclipse of the eclipse of grace, where uh, Taylor does kind of think like in this movement of the continued reconstruction of the self and the self as a project that... Uh, we do, we kind of lose touch with this sense of needing something outside of us to save us. So that what actually can fulfill us or connect us deeply to the good is not within us, but it's, it's without us. It's beyond us. We, we, we need that. And so we fundamentally need a grace. We need the grace to find that encounter, to meet that encounter. And so that is a big question. Like if we do away with the language of sin, I think Taylor kind of thinks that if we do away with the language of sin, we do lose some connection to certain dimensions of the self uh, in a legitimate way. Like that the self does have to deal with impossibility and that the self does have to deal with the fact that there, that what can what can actually save the self is not within it but outside of it so i guess my point is it's not surprising that one get that these both get discarded at the same time so to eclipse sin is also to make grace a kind of incoherence um but the question is do can you do can you do the reverse can you hold on to grace and not have a certain conception of sin and i think in uh kind of in a Lutheran imagination, you can't. Um, you, you actually, you can't. And that's not, like, I'm, I'm Bardian enough to believe that grace precedes sin. Like, God's response to sin is not grace. God is, as the inner constitution of the Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is grace. Like, the, 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 the inner life of God is filled with grace. So grace precedes sin, it precedes creation, because it's at the, at the center of God um, as the triune godhead so it's not to say that you need sin to have grace but the question does become can grace have any coherence if sin is just um computed to an illness that therefore strips it of its mystery i mean remember on this podcast we've talked about how taylor says one of the things that happens in late modernity is we lose a certain connection to mystery um, and it's replaced with um, puzzles, uh, puzzles. So we lose a sense of uh, like what we don't know. Even now, when we say, "Well, that's just a mystery," what we really mean is, "Well, we don't know the answer yet." 
You know, like it's a puzzle we haven't solved yet. Not that there are elements in the world that transcend our being so far we could never really know them, even though we may encounter them in some ways. But but that becomes this like overflowing mystery. So when you take away this dynamic of sin, which re, which asserts that there is that there are some things, there are some deep realities that are really core even to what it means for us to be human that just simply are off, that are simply, that that the whole even flowing of history is just kind of off tune or it's just, it, it's, it's, it's similar, I think, to at the kind of depth of it is similar to um, this very famous quote that Isaiah Berlin uh, it's a, it's a Kant quote, but he basically took it into his own and would repeat it all the time, where I guess Kant said in the 18th century, he says, from such um, crooked timber as humanity is made, of nothing straight can be built. Um, and there's just this kind of sense where, I mean, that's really interesting for Kant to say that, because Kant kind of is adopting this kind of sense of reason. And in an age where reason is starting to be able to do all of these things and, and what we know in our practical wisdom and, um, and, and, uh, and our practical reason and other forms of reason can actually shape directly how we live our lives. And yet Kant also has this deep sense that um, nevertheless, what humanity builds, even as a kind of the unflowing of history, is always with this crooked timber. And so um, the question just is, is, if you eclipse sin, do you eclipse the truth of this crooked timber that, that all of our elements are made out of, that even our best intentions in some ways are crooked, and therefore there's this deep eschatological longing for this grace to come and, um, and bring forth the, the depths of salvation? I mean, do we kind of lose that sense? And, and so this is, this is, the, this is the issue. Um, I think the ways a lot of us respond in opposition towards sin is the way they've been kind of psychological, well, they've been kind of psychologicalized and then um, turned into kind of shaming acts towards the actor. Um, but there also is a way, like this is the conundrum of the age of authenticity is that to completely eviscerate it. And to claim it as like old religion and nothing really more than a form of sickness is also to lose the dynamics to it. And it's to cut off our imagination and is not to be able to reach as far and maybe even hampers our eschatology. And it does um, hamper, I guess, yeah, it, it hampers this kind of articulation of the need for uh, this grace that is fully and completely outside of us. I wonder if, too, when we think about people who are across the spectrum from us on the ideological side of things, like if I'm on Twitter or if I'm reading stuff online, there ain't a whole lot of grace for your ideological opponents right now, either on either side. And I hate to make a you know dualistic kind of thing, but I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at, too, when you talk about the eclipse of grace? And, and that sort of thing, or is that... Yeah, well, I mean, there is... Is it different than that? Yeah, there is a way where... Uh, I mean, it is an interesting experiment that we're even seeing in our culture war right now where uh, where to eclipse, to eclipse sin doesn't take away to say, well, let's get sin out of there. I think there was a kind of maybe 19th century kind of liberal uh, illusion maybe that we could kind of get rid of 
these old words like sin and their old concepts, and then that would just we we'd fill that void with a kind of utopia. But what's happened is we've taken those concepts away. And what we've seen is all sorts of crazy things rush in. Like we didn't take sin away and all of a sudden people on Twitter are like, oh, I completely disagree with you, but I just want you to know that you're a valuable person. I'm a valuable person. And, you know, everything's, you know, I don't take anything you say personally. Actually, it heightens that to the to the nth degree. But there's really no way to even articulate how it gets to that. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 taking sin out of the, conversation hasn't led us to be um well it definitely hasn't allowed us to to interact on twitter in a, in a less crooked timber kind of way that that that's for sure but one of the things that i think it does that's really important is it it isn't just a, like a stand at ten thousand feet and be like oh because we've lost sin now we're doing this it also does something to the agent him or herself where when I do live in the conception of sin, that sin's not some kind of deficiency in me that I should feel shameful about, but it is a reality that I can't escape, that there's just something that is just fundamentally not quite right in the world. There's something off that, that, the, the, that, the, that, the, that the timber is crooked. And then I have to confess that I'm part of that, well, I mean, just there's just imagine on Twitter if you had people confessing that, listen, I'm going to tell you that I hate your views, but I first want to start by saying I'm a sinner and that therefore I'm in great need of grace. Um, so you're a complete idiot. I hope you die. You suck. How could you think LeBron is the second best player in the NBA? Like, you know what I mean? Like there is a way that a very kind of positive, formative way of of confessing that that you are a sinner, which sounds again, it sounds very kind of I don't know um, medieval in some ways. But to confess that you need something outside of you to save you, or you need something outside of you to put you in line with the good, gives has the potential to give you a great amount of humility. Instead, you can see what's happened with the sickness conversation is then what happens is I go online and I'm like, I freaking hate you because I'm someone who don't, I, w I want you to know I have this illness, I have this sickness, and now you've just offended me and that's actually part of my identity. So why don't you just go, go in your hole and die? You know, so there, it doesn't seem, I don't know, maybe people have different examples, but it, it, it doesn't seem that the eclipse of sin by sickness really does lead to a certain kind of, uh, I don't know, call it a, a kind of canonic disposition of, uh, that leads me to confess, to enter the world in pure confession. I mean, I think this is part of the issue is, I mean, I'm not one that wants to like get back to confessionals everywhere, like in a, in a kind of Catholic way, though that could be good in some senses, but I do wonder about how confession becomes the disposition of the church, like both in the, in the stories we tell, in, in the ways that we interact with each other, um, uh, that the way we even think about like leadership is always kind of out of confession, um, out of uh, the articulation of the impossibility of the crooked timber. Um, I mean, what, what a different way to lead a church by always saying, no matter the, the best we could do in this church, the best we could do as human agents in this church is still to build it out of crooked timber. 
So whatever this church is to become or whatever this church is to, to do, it is always a continued confession, even in our best moments, that this is built out of crooked timber and that we await God's coming to, to bring forth the structure that's, you know, fully plumb. All right, the analogy's gone too far now, but you, you see what I'm, I'm kind of going with it. Yeah, and I guess, I guess what hangs me up too is like, you know, I definitely have my ideological tribe that I probably identify more closely with. And if you ask me, list the sins of the people on the other side, I would have no problem doing that. And there's this part of me that thinks that if people who thought and act like I do were in charge of the world, the world would be a much better place. But, like, to me, that's what you're saying the whole problem is, is it's just that lack of humility and understanding sin not as individual sins, but rather that system of impossibility or the crooked timber, like you were saying, to where, like, if everybody on my team somehow was ruling the world, it would be just as messed up because, you know, we too are imperfect and all that. Is that, is that kind of what yeah, you're getting at? Yeah, and it, it also, I mean, it's just a little bit of it. It keeps us from a, a certain kind of naive utopianism too because it's not to say even with this crooked timber in a kind of societal structural way that we shouldn't try to build just structures that actually do keep people out of the elements and do feed them and, and do... Um, give them a sense of safety. Like those things are all really important. Um, but of course what's happened is even in the best attentions of those kind of structures that have been built, that they can take on either a direct utopianism or they take on a kind of, I don't know, um, kind of identity based over and against kind of utopianism that they, they often end up they end up kind of becoming self-defeating and eating each other and leading to kind of corruptions within um, because there isn't a certain kind of disposition that we take into the world like we might with the Jesus prayer where we say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, that isn't to like keep us cowered in a corner and being like, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm awful. But it is actually to propel us into the world to try out of this crooked timber to build structures that really do support and hold people, but also is, is built of the, a vision that um, we still always will need something outside of us to save us. There will always be the one who is, is beyond and other than us that, uh, that beckons us with the call of responsibility. Um, and that I will always be tempted to be um, the um, to, to be to be the priest and and the Levite and uh, not the Samaritan. You know, um, I I will always have that deep temptation within me to not. Um, and in some ways, I can only really act for the person beaten in the in the um, in the Good Samaritan par uh, uh, parable. By in some ways confessing that, uh, you know what, I, yeah, this isn't to be assumed. And that just as I need something outside of me to save me, so I need to be there for my neighbor, to be something outside and beyond them um, that meets them um, in a way that can minister to them in, in these moments. New Time Religion featuring Dr. Andy Root is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. Andy's brand new book, The Congregation in a Secular Age, is out now, and you can get it wherever fine books are sold or by just going to Amazon. New Time Religion is produced by the Alter Guild Podcasting Network, and you can check them out for more great shows. 
Thanks again so much for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.